In 1282, on the island of Sicily, just as the sun set, on the Monday after Easter, a group of Sicilian conspirators moved against their French occupiers and killed nearly 4,000 of them. This violent event triggered a wider Mediterranean war that saw the end of dynasties and reshaped the political balance of Europe. Let's dive in on this episode of Footnoting History. Bonjour, footnoters! It's Josh again, back with some more medieval intrigue for you. And actually, I probably shouldn't say bonjour, because of the night of the Sicilian Vespers, speaking French was enough to get yourself killed. More on that a little later. Before we really get going here, let me start by saying that this is the first of a two-part episode. So we're going to get just so far this week, and then the big payoff, or payoffs, are next week. So in this episode, we're going to set the stage and get behind why the conspirators hatched their plot against the French. There are an awful lot of moving pieces to keep track of here, but I'm going to try to streamline it and package it as much as I possibly can. As my PhD advisor once told me, this whole episode kind of feels like Game of Thrones. Alas, there are no dragons and, much to my co-host Christine's dismay, no Lannisters. So let's start with a little bit of geography. If you don't have a map handy, I want you to picture the quote-unquote boot of Italy. Sicily, as you all probably know already, is the island that the boot looks to be kicking. It's just to the west of the toe. Zoom out a little bit, and Sicily starts to feel a bit more important. Not only is it close to Italy, the Kingdom of Sicily actually included most of the southern part of the Italian boot itself, including the port city of Naples. It sits at a crossroad between the Latin West, the Greek East, and North Africa, too. And honestly, Sicily's always been a kind of nexus for the peoples of the Mediterranean. It was often the site of conflict between the Romans and the Greeks prior to the Romans conquering the entire Mediterranean. It was under the purview of the Byzantine Empire for some time. The Umayyad dynasty even held the island before they lost it to the Normans in the later 11th century. In the middle of the 13th century, Sicily also played a fairly important role in facilitating the movement of the Mediterranean. It was a place from which the Latins could launch a crusade, it allowed the Latins to have a bit of leverage over the Greeks, and it allowed an eye to be kept on the Mamluks to the south and the southeast. Relationships between these three big shots were, let's say, strained at the time. Actually, there's no real need to mince words here. There was an active hostility between all of them. Latin Christians had invaded, conquered, and looted Byzantium during the Fourth Crusade in 1204. The Mamluks not only had control of North Africa, but they had taken the majority of the Holy Land and had started to move in on territory in Persia that was now under the control of the Ilkhans the Mongols who had taken over and settled in Persia. In fact, it would be the Mamluks who sacked and took over Acre 
the last Crusader city in 1291. All of this is really to say that if you're feeling a bit unconvinced about Sicily's importance, I'd really like it if you'd consider your position. The story of Sicily's politics after the Normans, at least in the Middle Ages, is one of shifting allegiances, outside kings, and papal interference. Well, maybe interference isn't quite the right word, but the popes of the second half of the 13th century definitely put a lot of time and effort into making sure Sicily had a king who was loyal to the pope. After all, the papacy considered itself the lord of Sicily. The king was only to be the pope's vassal. And the church had good reason to do so, especially since the papacy had found itself involved in a lot of continental politics that didn't always go their way. Two things stand out here that we need to be sure to note. First, let's spend just a tick on the so-called Holy Roman Empire, which of course, as the joke goes, was neither holy nor Roman nor an empire. Actually, maybe we could quibble about that last one if we were in a seminar together. If you know anything about the papacy and Germany during the Middle Ages and the early modern period, you'll know that their relationship was... tense. And really, this all began in the 11th century during the Investiture Conflict, a battle between Pope Gregory VII and Henry IV of Germany. Despite some initial reconciliation between those two men, it soon turned into open hostilities, including Henry IV chasing Gregory VII out of Rome completely. The papacy had a contentious relationship with the Eternal City even before the Avignon papacy of the 14th century. Many 13th century popes actually lived outside of the office's traditional home. The animosity between the papacy and the Holy Roman Empire came to a head again in the middle of the 13th century. The Holy Roman Emperor at the time, Frederick II, had beef with several popes. While Frederick II was in the Holy Land in the first half of the 13th century, his regent, the guy watching his kingdom while he was away, decided to attack the Duchy of Spoleto which caused the Pope, Gregory IX, to raise an army against him. Frederick came back to mainland Europe and eventually set the whole affair right. But this angered some of the German princes and didn't sit right with many who were loyal to the Pope first. Papal suspicion of Frederick II would absolutely boil over, beginning with Frederick's attack on the Pope's land holdings after a diplomatic incident involving some papal envoys traveling aboard a Genoese ship. Frederick II ordered his army to march towards Rome, burning everything as they went. Frederick didn't make it to Rome, but only because he stopped when he got the news that Pope Gregory IX had died. The new pope, Celestine IV, held office only for a few days before he himself died. So Frederick had to play a little bit of a wait-and-see game when it came to 
the relationship he had with the papacy. When a new pope was finally elected in 1243, nearly two years after Gregory IX and Celestine IV had died, Frederick found himself in a very dangerous situation. After invading the city of Viterbo, because he was about to lose it to rebels who had been instigated by Cardinal Ranieri Capacci, the new pope, Innocent IV, sought to broker a peace between Frederick II and the rebels. Frederick pulled back after signing the Pope's peace treaty, but then the rebels attacked his troops and slaughtered his entire garrison. Frederick was enraged, so he responded in kind. Pope Innocent IV now declared that Frederick had broken the terms of their treaty and then the Pope fled with his cardinals to Léon in France, where they would hold a major council. This is known as the First Council of Léon. There'll be a second one in another episode, maybe. At that council, Cardinal Ranieri Capacci, the guy who had instigated the rebels, the guy who had slaughtered Frederick's troops, After signing the treaty, this guy clearly had it in for Frederick. Well, Capacci steered the proceedings of the Council of Leon in an explicit anti-Frederick direction. Capacci went as far as to declare Frederick the Antichrist. And hey, is it really a Josh episode unless somebody gets called the Antichrist? It seems to keep coming up. When the council came to a close, even Innocent IV, who had initially desired peace, began a propaganda campaign against Frederick, with such claims that Frederick was good friends with the Muslim Sultan of Egypt, that Frederick was a Muslim himself, or switching big Latin enemies enthralled by the Greek emperor. All of this propaganda was a pretext for declaring a crusade against Frederick which the Pope launched in 1248. This crusade, however, would only last until 1250. Frederick II died that year, and you might think that he died in glorious battle, wielding the hammers of justice and might, and all the great symbols of the Holy Roman Emperor. But no, he died of dysentery. And he wasn't even on the Oregon Trail. With Frederick II gone, the papacy saw an opportunity to seize a territory that had belonged to Frederick. The papacy had long coveted the kingdom of Sicily, and now that Frederick was gone, they thought that maybe they had their chance. We'll come back to this in a second. The second piece of political information that we really need to understand before we wade into the conspiracy and the assassinations during the Vespers, is to talk about another split in Italy, this time between two political parties, the Guelphs and the Ghibellines. I'm probably saying those wrong because my Italian is abysmal, so you'll forgive me if it's something that isn't Guelph and Ghibelline. We're going to go with those. And... Okay, to call them political parties, that's a bit of a misnomer. 
but I think it's the best shorthand I've got without having to go on another like 10 minute digression. To keep this straightforward more for me than for anyone else, let's think of the two parties this way. The Guelphs favored the papacy and the Ghibellines favored imperial rule. They liked guys like Frederick II. So as most things medieval politics tend to go, and this is a dramatic oversimplification, there was a split over which should take priority. Spiritual authority versus temporal authority. We could use the word secular as a stand-in for temporal, but medieval folks wouldn't quite understand what secular meant in the way we mean it. After all, the emperors were not secularists. They were religious men, deeply religious men, but they believed that their authority from God himself was greater than the authority that God placed in the Pope. Anyway, you know who we should blame right now? St. Augustine and his two swords, a bunch of troublemakers. The Guelph and the Ghibelline split also came out of the investiture conflict. And sorry I trailed off a bit there. I was hearing my former advisor in my head pointing and shouting, See, I told you it was so important. But of course, what we understand as Northern Italy was a part of the Holy Roman Empire at this time. And it's there in Northern Italy that the conflict between these two parties played out most intensely. In fact, you probably might recognize the names Guelph and Ghibelline if you're familiar with the Italian poet Dante Alighieri, who got run out of Florence after a split between the Guelphs in his city into two different factions, the Black Guelphs and the White Guelphs. Dante was a White Guelph guy, the Black Guelphs won, and so Dante got run out of town. And, of course, this famously gave Dante plenty of people to populate hell with. And, in fact, several of the key players in our episode here also faced Dante's infernal pen. In any event, I want to keep the Guelphs and the Ghibellines in the back of our minds going forward. They're going to surface from time to time, and I didn't want any of us caught off guard when they did. We want to expect them. They're no Spanish Inquisition. Let's get focused on Sicily again. Following Frederick II's death, the papacy actively sought a new king for the kingdom that they so coveted. The problem for the church was that Frederick had a direct and legitimate heir to the throne of Sicily. Conrad IV continued where his father, Frederick II, had left off, attacking the rest of Italy and running afoul of the papacy. He would not last long. When Conrad IV died in 1254, his young son, Conradin, was just a toddler. He was about two. Conrad's half-brother and son of Frederick II, Manfred, who had already been the regent of Sicily when Conrad IV was off doing Conrad things in Italy, became Conradin's regent. 
Conradin himself was whisked off to Germany to grow up in the Hohenstaufen port under his uncle, Louis II of Bavaria. He'll be back next week. Manfred, as the regent of Sicily, had his work cut out for him. Several uprising and riots had taken place in the kingdom, led by those who remained loyal to the papacy and did not care for the Hohenstaufen family having anything to do with their island. Manfred put them all down. There's a bit more to that story, but that's a whole different episode, so I'm going to hold off. Manfred, though he thought he had complete control of the Kingdom of Sicily, was not content to be regent. He desired to be the king, with a capital K. This man was ambitious. Curiously, in 1258, a rumor began to circulate that the actual king, Conradin, who was hanging out in Germany, had died. Where this rumor came from? That's unknown. But I know you're all thinking what I'm thinking. Maybe it was Manfred. What a dastardly villain. There's absolutely no evidence to support this at all, but we're gonna go for the drama here. A young boy dying in Germany was certainly not out of the ordinary for the Middle Ages, even among royalty. And of course, it's not like anyone on the island or in the kingdom itself was gonna take a trip up to Bavaria and check. And the Sicilians figured that Manfred was as good as any. So they gave him the crown. Manfred, the ambitious man that he was, had no intentions of stopping with the Kingdom of Sicily. He had a score to settle with the papacy, and so he attacked. And I mean, he attacked the Papal States in central Italy directly, and he won. And still, he wasn't done. Manfred gained control of northern Italy soon thereafter and put the papacy in great peril. His ascendancy to the upper echelons of European royalty was cemented in 1262 when he married his daughter Constance off to Peter III, king of Aragon in modern-day Spain. A couple of things before we wrap up part one of the Vespers saga. Manfred, despite his rivalry with the papacy, sought reconciliation. It's not like Manfred wanted to do this out of respect for the Pope. No. Manfred understood quite well that as long as the papacy was hostile towards him, he would never be able to enjoy his power and status. So he thought to bring them a peace offering. That peace offering, in Manfred's mind, was embodied in the Latin Empire of Constantinople, otherwise known as the Byzantine Empire under the control of an emperor who was faithful to the papacy. The current emperor, Baldwin II, was desperately trying to hold on to the last vestiges of power that he had left. Following the Fourth Crusade, which, as you remember, saw Latin Christians sack Constantinople and the Latins depose the current Byzantine emperor, 
Constantine City was pretty much all that the Latins were able to hold on to. And Baldwin II was desperate. In order to finance his so-called empire, he had sold Byzantine relics to the French king Louis IX. Yep, that's St. Louis. And he had sold the roofs off of some of his churches and had even pawned off his own son to some Italian merchants. Bruh. So here comes Manfred. And in Manfred, Baldwin II saw opportunity. The Latin emperor had long coveted a European champion. Meanwhile, the Byzantine Empire, I mean the real one, had regrouped a bit further to the northeast. It had split into three separate, let's say, sub-kingdoms, but those were soon united by another unscrupulous man, Michael VIII Paleologus. This guy had consolidated rule through means immoral enough that many in the remaining Byzantine Empire called him usurper. Michael's ascent to the throne deserves a whole episode, maybe even a whole series. But just quickly, once he had united the Byzantines, he moved to take back Constantinople from the Latin Emperor. And he did. Well, he signed a treaty with Baldwin II, but then his general, Alexio Strategopolis, whom we'll call Stegosaurus, infiltrated Constantinople and forced Baldwin II to hand it over to Michael. Baldwin II was reduced to having to travel around Europe and seek out aid and monies to reestablish the Latin Empire. And while he was there, he tried to convince the Pope and the kings of Europe that Manfred wasn't such a bad guy. Nobody bought it. I mean, they were very interested in retaking Constantinople and reestablishing the Latin Empire, but they wanted nothing to do with Manfred. So Manfred returned to Italy. Things were about to go badly for him. Baldwin II sought a European hero and thought he had found one in Manfred. Meanwhile, the church had long been after a hero of their own who would deliver the kingdom of Sicily to the papacy. After a brief dalliance with Prince Edmund of England, whose father, Henry III, had developed a scheme with the papacy to put Edmund on the throne before backing out due to money issues, the papacy found their champion in Charles I of Anjou a member of House Angevin, a royal house of French origins who partly ruled in England in the 12th and 13th centuries. Chuck, I mean Charles, came from some lineage. He was the second son of Louis VIII of France and Blanche of Castile. Who was this couple's first son? You know him as St. Louis, Louis IX. Chuck became Charles of Anjou when his older brother gave him the title of Count. Charles would also accompany Louis IX on his crusade in Egypt, only to be captured and ransomed before he returned to Europe in 1250. 
The church and Charles settled on an agreement in 1263 for Charles to eliminate the hated Manfred in exchange for becoming the king of Sicily, rightfully invested by the papacy. Charles went about Europe building his army and eventually gathered 30,000 men to his side. That army marched to Italy to face Manfred, who was enraged by the papacy's attempt to usurp him. Charles' forces ended up in Rome for a time because, despite their size, the army needed significant financial backing. And of course, he had the Gelfs to rely on. They gave him plenty of support. Meanwhile, Manfred tarried at first, but once Charles had crossed the Alps, Manfred started gathering Ghibelline forces and rode out to meet Charles in battle. Charles had been eating up cities in northern Italy, and Manfred wanted a single confrontation as soon as possible, before Charles could even absorb more territory. The two met at Benevento on the 26th of February, 1266. Manfred's forces had the upper hand initially, but Charles' forces turned to the tide and pressed their advantage. Manfred eventually saw the writing on the wall and charged into Charles's forces head first. The great enemy of the church and the last Hohenstaufen in Sicily was dead. Charles I of Anjou was soon crowned King of Sicily. He took a fairly conciliatory approach to Manfred's supporters in the kingdom, but those supporters always had a suspicion that Charles would bring back the Guelph lords that the Ghibelline lords of Sicily and supporters of the Holy Roman Empire had driven out. And of course, Conradin, the supposedly dead true King of Sicily, was still very much alive and would soon want to seize his own claim on the throne. The stage was set. That's where we'll leave it for this episode. I'll be back in two weeks to finish the tale, or if you're listening to this as part of uh, In the Future from when I recorded this footnoting history binge, perhaps on a road trip as soon as this episode ends. I'll talk to you soon, footnoters. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Footnoting History. Don't forget to head over to footnotinghistory.com for visuals, links, and sources related to the Sicilian Vespers. Don't forget that all of our episodes are now on YouTube, complete with closed captions. Please go visit our channel, like our videos, and subscribe if you love it. If you'd like to interact with us, we're on Twitter as at History Footnote, or Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest as at Footnoting History. We'd love to hear from you, and remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. <laughs>